Thank you, Joan. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Acts, chapter 7 is where we are this morning. Uh, a long, lengthy passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. We're going to break it down into little, uh, little smaller pieces, but we're going to cover a lot of Scripture today in a message entitled Rebellion. And so Acts, chapter 7, is where I'd love for you to turn. And uh, you can go ahead and mark your place in Acts. We're going to be there for a while. If you haven't already figured that out, uh, it'd be great to just mark it. And uh, every now and then, as God leads, we may move on to somewhere else. But you can still keep it marked even then because we'll be back. Unless Jesus comes back, then we'll be with the Word. And uh, we won't be reading it. We'll, we'll be walking with Him. So go ahead and mark your spot. Acts chapter 7. Just keep it there uh, every week. Rebellion is the title of the message this morning. I, I looked into uh, the Webster's Dictionary as I was preparing for this message. And I looked up the definition for the word rebel. Uh, not, not the noun rebel, uh, but the, the verb rebel. And uh, I wasn't surprised by what it said. There was nothing really catchy or interesting that I had never thought of before. It's just a simple definition, to oppose or disobey one in authority or control. To rebel is to oppose or to disobey one who is in authority or one who is in control. Now, all of us, I would say, probably in our lives have rebelled at some time or another. You probably remember whenever you were a small child or growing up through your uh, teen years, perhaps, you chose to rebel and you would suffer the wrath of that at the hands of your parents. You'd be uh, disciplined or put in your room or things taken away or whatever. So all of us have made choices to rebel. And we've all really done that in different ways. I mean, there have been different consequences or different forms of rebellion. You know, for you, maybe when you were in high school, rebellion was in the form of a you know, dating a guy or a girl that you knew your parents did not approve of. And you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to date him. I'm going to date her. And that was your way of rebelling. Maybe for you, it was purchasing that motorcycle or that fast car or whatever that object was that you wanted. And you knew you didn't need it. And you knew that you weren't supposed to have it. And you knew that whoever in your family didn't want you to have it, a husband or a wife or a mom or dad. But that was the way you rebelled and you purchased it and you spent the money for it and you got it. And that was your form of rebellion. You know, for others, the way you rebelled was in different ways. Maybe your rebellion got you a black eye. <laughs> you know, something that came as a result. You rebelled and you got beat up for it. And you got a black eye or you went out and got, you know, I don't know, a tattoo or something. I could never get a tattoo, by the way. Not for any theological reasons. I'm just a wimp. There is no way that I could just, I, that I could do that. I mean, I, I, you know, I've heard people say before, the Bible says, I, I don't even go there. That's not even necessarily the issue. I'm just a wimp. I could never do that. I would pass out on the spot right there when I, when I tried to get, get me a tattoo. There's no way I could do it. But for you, rebellion maybe has shown itself in different ways. And though there are ways that sometimes we can look back and laugh about, in ways there are times we can look at rebellion in our lives and it's no laughing matter. It cost us greatly. Perhaps for some of you, your rebellion brought an injury that you still are reminded of every single day. And you could look at all different reasons why you did what you did, but it was really at the heart, just a, an act of rebellion, basically. And it cost you more than you could ever imagine. Maybe for you, rebellion cost a marriage. Maybe it cost a relationship with a son or a daughter or a close friend. Maybe it cost you a job. Maybe it cost a broken dream. You know, to rebel is to oppose or to disobey whatever the established authority or control is in our lives. And it comes in a lot of different ways. Every one of us have experienced it. But whenever we look at rebellion in Scripture, I believe, obviously, the worst form of rebellion is when we choose to rebel against God. We find here in Acts chapter 7, the longest address that we'll read of in the entire book of Acts. It's basically a sermon, if you want to call it that. It's literally a defense by a person named Stephen who's been hauled into the governing authorities within the religious circles of his day. And they placed Stephen there on trial. It was a, 
not a legal trial, not a literal trial, but it was a, an informal trial, basically, where he was being called to account for the words that he had spoken in those recent days. And he stands before the most important, the most powerful group of ruling religious Jewish leaders in the first century. And he's called to give account for what he had said. Now, the way he chooses to defend himself is going to be very interesting, as we'll see in just a few moments. Because what he chooses to do is not to focus so much on what he had said, but he's going to focus on the rebellion of the hearts and lives of these leaders and the, all of the leaders that had come before him. And so he focuses on the importance in the sight of God of a heart that chooses rebellion over obedience. You know, for some of you this morning, perhaps right now, as you come here, you're facing rebellion in your own life. And it's not because you've got a child that's rebellious. It's not because you're uh, uh, experiencing rebellion from another person towards you. It's that you are really either in the midst of rebellion or you're considering rebellion in some form or fashion in your life. Maybe it's a physical rebellion where you're considering, or maybe even right now you're actively in the midst of rebellion against, uh, uh, against God. And you're choosing to use the body that God gave you to do things or choose a lifestyle or to make decisions that you know God would never choose for you. And in, in your life, in your body, the way you live out your days is an active rebellion against God. Maybe even spiritually you're in rebellion against the Lord. God wants certain things for your life. God's already painted a picture of what his standard is. He's already communicated in his word what his standard is for your life. And th- that standard, by the way, is not to just make life miserable. It doesn't do that. It brings life for us when we follow God's will. But for you, it's a tug of war. It's a, it's a wrestling match. And we never win those kind of, kind of battles with God. And for you spiritually, you're in a place of rebellion. And God has spoken to an area of your life and he wants you to obey in some area and he's exercising authority and by his love he's given you the direction that you need but it may be in the area of dating or finances or relations in the workplace or integrity or or the moral aspect of your walk some area of your life you're in rebellion against him and it's a spiritual decision that you're making you're basically with all intents and purposes saying you know god is not the one in control of this area i'm in control of this area i'm the one who's going to call the shots in this area of my life and it is a spiritual choice to rebel against god well, as we look at Acts chapter 7, as we pull out this, this uh, monologue, basically, that Stephen is going to give in defense of himself, we're going to look at this topic of rebellion because you can't help but see it there. And I want to pull out two principles that I hope will not only summarize what Stephen says because it's a lengthy passage of Scripture, but also hopefully strike at the heart of our own lives and encourage us this morning as well. So principle number one, and I want you to jot these down. Principle number one that comes out of chapter 7 is this. One cannot embrace rebellion without rejecting God. It is impossible for us to choose to embrace rebellion in some area of our lives or, as, or, or in life as a, as a whole. It is impossible for us to embrace rebellion without at the same time rejecting God. And so the principle, one cannot embrace rebellion without rejecting God. You know, think for a second. There are certain things that logically are impossible you can't walk, for example, and stand still at the same time. It is logically impossible for that to happen. You're either walking or you're standing still. You can't walk and stand still at the same time. Impo- logically, that's impossible. If you've ever carried a load of groceries and you've got a load of groceries in one arm, not room for anything else, you've got a load of groceries in the other arm, there's not room for anything else, you can't pick up a third bag of groceries if both arms are full. Logically, that is impossible. And in the same way, in a similar fashion, whenever we look at this concept of rebellion and walking in obedience to God, it is logically impossible for us to choose to rebel without rejecting God in that area. We cannot say yes to rebellion without saying no to God at the same time. 
It is logically impossible to rebel and at the same time please God through obedience. Now, Stephen is going to do something real interesting here as he begins to defend himself. He's going to go to the heart of the lives of not only these Jewish leaders that were standing before him, but he's going to go to the heart of all the Jews that had come before him. Stephen was a Jew by birth. He was a Hellenistic Jew, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. He wasn't a native Hebrew Jew. He was part of the diaspora or the scattering. He had more than possibly lived outside of the city of uh, Jerusalem. For whatever reason, he was back now at this point. He was able to speak Greek, and he was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. Stephen was a waiter. (laughs) He was a table waiter. He was one of the original seven in chapter six that were pulled out to be able to help serve the physical needs of the widows when they were being overlooked as the food was distributed every day. And so Stephen, this Jew who had come to Christ, was a table waiter responsible for serving food on a daily basis to the widows in the church in Jerusalem. He was a man the Bible describes as being full of the Spirit, full of power, full of grace. He was of good reputation. Chapter 6 tells us he was a person whom God was, was in control of and whom God was using tremendously. And so we find him here at the end of chapter 6, standing before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 Jewish ruling uh, leaders who were the most powerful in Jewish circles in their day. And so Stephen is standing before these 71. He is informally on trial, and the accusation is that he had blasphemed against God, that he had spoken things against the temple and against the law, and now he's been called to account. So here's Stephen. For all we know, the apostles are nowhere to be found for whatever reason. Doesn't mean they abandoned God. They're just not here. They're not mentioned. We don't have any mention of, of, of uh, Peter. We don't have any mention of, of uh, John. We don't have any mention of the early church here. For all we know, it's Stephen and 71 intimidating Jewish leaders that encircle him. And we find that he has been called to account. Whenever he's called to account, he chooses to represent himself in brilliant fashion, pointing from the earliest of days to the rebellion of the hearts of the people of God. We find that By the close of his speech here, again, the longest address in the book of Acts, he has turned the tables from himself, where the emphasis did not belong, for he had done nothing wrong, and he turned them to the Jewish leaders who were guilty in the sight of God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through piece by piece this address that he makes in the book of Acts chapter 7, and we're going to look at how he indicts the people of Israel for their rebellion against God. He first references Abraham. And by the way, you'll notice as we read through this, as an example, if you look down to verse 3, if in your verse or in your translation, that verse may be capitalized. Wherever you find a verse like that in the New Testament capitalized, it means that it is a quote from the Old Testament. And you'll find throughout this address, Stephen constantly throughout it quotes verbatim the Old Testament. He was a man who knew God's word. How in the world are we expected to live a life of integrity? How are we expected to live in a way that goes against, goes counter to the culture of our world to stand for Christ when we don't know his word? Stephen knew God's word. Stephen understood what God's word said. Stephen was one who not only understood it, but he had apparently memorized, I find it unlikely that he had a scroll there in front of him from which he read as he addressed this group of the Sanhedrin. Stephen knew God's word and he knew it with power. It was what added to the power of his life. 
And so you'll notice as we read through this address that he quotes from God's word often. He knew God's word from the days of Abraham all the way through the pages of the Old Testament, and he knew it well. And so he begins his defense by pointing to the person of Abraham. Pick up with me there, chapter 7, verse 1. And we're going to read down through verse 8. It's in these verses that Stephen lays a foundation for his defense. And he draws on the commonality between he as a Jew, though he was a Christian, and the Jewish heritage of those that were standing before him. Verse 1, he says, it says, The high priest said to him, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Here's where he quotes for the first time the Old Testament from Genesis 12. Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Well, then he, Abraham, left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave, this is important, verse 8, and he, God, gave to Abraham the covenant of circumcision. That was a, an outward sign that these were the people of God, the Jews that God had chosen for himself. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and he circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And so what, what, what uh, Stephen does is he lays the foundation here, and he draws on the commonality between he as a Jew and the Jewish heritage of those that were standing before him as the Sanhedrin, these ruling elders who'd called him to account. And so he begins with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and he paints the picture that they were God's chosen people. Second, he then moves on and he begins to reference the 12 sons of Jacob, referenced, uh, referenced here as the patriarchs. These would also include one of Jacob's sons by the name of Joseph that we read of at the end, towards the end of the book of Genesis. Pick up with me in verse 9. And let's read what Stephen says here. He says, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. In other words, the eleven sons of Jacob became jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him, and he rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. You know, what Stephen's doing here is he's basically summarizing the end of the book of Genesis. Verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Well, then Joseph sent word, and he invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers passed away. From there they were removed to Shechem, laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now, what's, what, what Stephen does here is he begins to tighten the bolts down just a little bit, and he is beginning to paint a picture of the rebellion of the people of God in the centuries past. What he points to is Joseph, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And he emphasizes, and you'll notice there, if you look again up in verse 9, he emphasizes that it was Joseph who was sold into Egypt by his brothers. 
Here's what we need to understand there. Do you see it in Genesis? Joseph was sold into slavery because of the rebellious, jealous heart of his brothers. They did not uh, appreciate that God had a call on Joseph's life. They did not appreciate the dreams that God had given to Joseph, literally. And as a result of their jealousy and their, their anger, they rebelled against Joseph. And in their rebellion, they rejected the plan of God. They rejected God himself. And so Stephen is beginning to paint this relationship between rebellion and rejection. They, re- they rebelled against Joseph, and in so doing, they ultimately rejected God. You cannot embrace rebellion without rejecting God. Third, Stephen goes on and he begins to move from the patriarchs to Moses. This is the lengthiest passage of scripture. So really hang in there as we begin in verse 17. And he begins to talk about the person of Moses, one of those mountaintop uh, uh, figures in Old Testament history. And he talks about Moses and he paints a picture yet again of, of rebellion and rejection. Pick up with me verse 17. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Well, it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, Stephen says to this group of the Sanhedrin, and he mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. What he's described there in those three verses, 17 through 19, is basically the gap between Genesis and Exodus. He's describing the growth of the Israelite people and the mistreatment that came to them at the hands of the Egyptians. Verse 20, it was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power and words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, that is, the Hebrews, the Jews, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him. And he took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled, and he became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Well, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. That particular event in verse 30 is uh, captured in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Well, this Moses, whom they disowned, and that is key, this Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses 
who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. That's a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. And so Stephen comes to basically an end of his reference to Moses, but what he's done in those verses, and it was a lengthy segment, what he's done in his speech to the Sanhedrin is that he's drawn a relationship, he's drawn the parallel between their rebellion against Moses and their rejection of God. You rebelled against Moses, he was God's ordained leader that God had placed there in your midst, and since you rebelled against him, you in essence also rebelled or rejected God in the process. What he does next is he moves further through Old Testament history. In fact, pick up with me there as he begins to talk about the prophets. Look in verse Look down, well, look in verse 39. He says, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, to Moses, but they repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. That's that picture of rebelling against Moses and rejecting God. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf, brought a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And so Moses is used to paint a picture between rebellion and the relationship that it has to rejection of God. Verse 42, now he talks about the prophets. Listen to what he says. But God turned away, and he delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramphah, the images which you made to worship them. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Stephen says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. What he paints a picture of here is that the prophets who would come later in Old Testament history, would, would also be rebelled against by the people of Israel. And as Israel rebelled against the prophets, they were at the same time rejecting God. It was yet another picture that Stephen paints of the relationship between rebellion and rejection of God. He then turns his attention in verse 46 to David and Solomon, two of the greatest kings that would serve in the history of the nation of Israel. Verse 46, he says, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? See, Israel had an interesting perspective on themselves. They believed that because they had a temple, and they believed that because they were the chosen people of God that was proven through the, through the rite of circumcision, they believed that because of those two things, they were the children of Abraham, and they had a temple, they believed that they were fine with God. 
They had this misconceived idea that because we are Abraham's children, you may remember some of that dialogue Jesus would have with the Pharisees right along those same lines, that because they were Abraham's people and because they had the temple, they believed they were fine with God. Did not matter what they did, did not matter how they lived, did not matter the position of their hearts. As long as we, because we are Abraham's people and because we have the temple, we are fine with God was their mistaken uh, perception. And so what Stephen is doing here is he is beginning to show them and he is beginning to paint the picture between their rebellion of all of the leadership that God had given them and in that rebellion was wrapped up as well their rejection of God. And this sets the stage then for his indictment beginning in verse 51. Let me say this is one of the absolute sharpest indictments that you will read in Scripture spoken from one person to another. Every bit of it true. Reminiscent of the indictment that Jesus would make to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders who were leading so many astray. Stephen now, in verse 51, ties everything together. He says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, a reference to Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Stephen had turned the tables completely on these religious leaders and he had done it brilliantly. He had shown them the truth to which they could have chosen to respond in repentance. He had set the table for them to, be, to make themselves to be obedient to the truth of God. He had given them everything they needed to do, and he drew a picture of their rebellion. They had rebelled against Joseph. His brothers had, figuratively, representing the nation of Israel. They had rebelled against Joseph, and in so doing, they rejected God. They had rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and in so doing, they had rejected God. They had rebelled against the prophets when they spoke against the, uh, the position of the hearts of the people of Israel that were so far from God. And as they rebelled against the prophets, they had rejected God. Jesus had sent, or God had sent his own son, Jesus, who would die on the cross in their place to save them from their sins. And as he sent Jesus in 33 years of human life, three and a half years of public ministry, they would look at Jesus as the people of Israel. They would rebel against Jesus, having him crucified, and in so doing, would reject God in the process. And what Stephen does then is that he turns the tables and he applies it to them where they stood, where they looked at him as they were listening. And he says, you are just like your fathers, rebellious in heart, and in your rebellion you have rejected God. And he brought an indictment against them that was as scathing as any we'll read in Scripture. And every bit of it true. What was their response? They rebelled against Stephen and in so doing, rejected God. Look in verse 54. We'll get here next week, but let me pull out a few verses. Verse 54, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Verse 57, But they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You and I cannot embrace rebellion without rejecting God. And all through Israel's history, 
what Stephen showed them was you have categorically throughout your days rebelled against God's people, God's voice, God's word, and in so doing, you have rejected him. Which brings us to a simple question. So in what area of life are you perhaps this morning in rebellion against God? In what area of your life have you planted your feet and said in so many words, God, I don't care what you say. And I don't care what you desire. And I don't care what your word says. And I don't care what your standard is. But in this area of my life, I'm going to choose what course I take. I'm going to choose what I do with my body. I'm going to choose how I live my life. I'm going to choose how I operate in the business world. I'm going to choose how I deal with my finances. I'm going to choose how I handle myself in regards to morality. I'm going to choose for my life in this area or every area. What area of your life have you said, God, I'm going to run the show in this portion of my life. You just stay on the sidelines and I'll see you in heaven. And in whatever area of rebellion you or I choose to engage in, it's in that area that we have rejected God. And I'll just say, and I don't say this in judgment because I'm not a judge of anyone. I've got enough to deal with my own want with God. I just simply say this as a point of truth for us to be aware of. When we reject God, even as believers, listen, it will cost us more than we could have ever seen. Just, just listen to some of these verses. I only, I only pull out just a handful. Listen to these verses. You don't have to jot them down. You don't have to go there. Just listen as I read. Psalm 68, verse 6. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Psalm 106, verse 43. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. Psalm 107, verse 17, fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Never does Scripture paint a pretty picture, paint a picture of prosperity for the person who chooses to rebel against God in any area of our lives. And so it is impossible for us to engage in rebellion or to embrace rebellion and at the same time to choose to walk closer with God. Perhaps one of the greatest, most clear examples of this, and you don't have to turn here, but just listen, is in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, captures an event in the life of King Saul, the first king of the nation, or the unified nation of Israel. Saul had been given the command by God to go into an enemy territory, basically, and to wipe everything out. He was to obey that, leaving nothing spared. However, when Saul and his men got in there, what they chose to do was to save some of the better spoil for themselves. And rather than obeying God, they chose to only partially obey and to keep some things for themselves that God had commanded them to completely eliminate. Samuel the prophet would confront Saul on his decision. Listen to what he says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 and verse 23. Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. And then listen to what he says. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Your translation may say witchcraft. If you want to understand how God views rebellion, that's the way he views it. It is on equal terms as witchcraft. (laughs) 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, there's that relationship again between rebellion and rejection of God. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. First, he had rebelled, Saul had. You've rebelled against the Lord. Against the Lord. It, it is equal to witchcraft. It's like iniquity. It's like idolatry. And then he equates it to rejection of God. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he, Saul, has also rejected you from being king. And so God takes rebellion very, very seriously, partly because of his own glory and partly because of, he knows, of where he knows rebellion will lead us people that he loves. And so it is impossible for us to embrace rebellion without rejecting God. Principle two, and we're done. Rebellion is also often a first step toward idolatry. Rebellion is often a first step toward idolatry. I I can hear what you're saying. If if you're really engaged in the message in this passage, I I can already hear what you're thinking. Brooks, come on, man. Uh, You're you're telling me (laughs) that if I rebel and I choose to, you know, just cheat on my taxes because, you know, it's been a hard year and I deserve it and the government doesn't need it anyway. If I rebel, and I know God wants me to be honest, if I rebel in this area or I, I know what God wants for me in regards to my marriage and, and, and the purity that's there, but, I mean, come on. You're telling me if I rebel and I just step out of what God calls me to do, you're telling me that I'm going to be bowing down to some idol in my living room in a week? Is that where you're going with this thing? Let me just paint the picture. Based on the way the enemy operates, I will say that it's unlikely that you will move that quickly. But it will be chilling, I believe, to see as we walk through this passage again briefly the relationship between rebellion, rejection, replacement, and idolatry. Here's what we find, that whenever the people of Israel would rebel against the plan of God and in so doing they would reject God, they would also very quickly replace Him. They would rebel, they would reject, and then they would replace. You look at the book of Exodus, for example. Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai, receiving the law from God. The people of Israel would rebel ultimately against Moses, against his leadership, and in their rebellion would reject God And while Moses is on the top of that mountain, what do they do? They're getting all their gold and all their goodies and they're fashioning a golden calf to which they would bow down and worship. They had not only rebelled against God, but they had ultimately rejected Him. And soon after their rejection, they replaced Him. You listen to the words of the prophets throughout the Old Testament and they would indict the people of Israel. Why? Because they were in constant rebellion against the word of the prophets. And as they would rebel against the prophets, they in so doing were rejecting God and His truth at the same time. And then ultimately what would they do? They'd get into the promised land, they would begin to immerse with the Canaanite people, and they'd begin to build for themselves their own high places, and they'd begin to add to their, to their system of worship their own false gods. They rebelled against the prophets, in so doing rejected God, and then they replaced Him with their false idols themselves. You look further as well throughout Scripture. 
And you look at Israel, how they reject, uh, rebelled against Jesus, rebelled against his truth. And ultimately, in so doing, they rejected God because Jesus is God. And they hung him on a cross. Why did they do that? Because they had replaced God in their minds with the temple and with them being God's people through Abraham. And they felt like everything is okay. We don't need this Jesus. We don't need this Messiah. We're fine with God because we've replaced him with the temple and with the rite of circumcision. We are Abraham's people. Don't come telling us that we need to repent and be saved. And there is an ongoing relationship in Scripture between rebelling against the ways of God, rejecting God in that rebellion, and then replacing Him with something else to come. And that's what Stephen had pointed out. That's what he showed them. And he showed them very, very clearly. You know, as I was studying this week, I came across something that I had never known before, and this just only emphasizes the second point, and I'll be done. That whenever, there have been times in history when the Old Testament in Hebrew has been translated into the Greek language. And this is interesting. In the Greek language, the word group for apostasy, which is an abandonment of God, not just rebelling against him, but flat abandoning him. In the Greek language, the word group for the word, uh, which the words that mean to abandon God.